All right, we are back. Uh, last weekend, Mr. McMillan and I were fortunate enough to be able to attend a symposium in San Francisco addressing the issue of what happened to John F. Kennedy back in 1963. Oh, in case you weren't aware, he got assassinated. But this topic has proven to be endlessly interesting for us because it's quite clear, what's well, quite clear to 90% of the American public, that we were not told the whole truth about that event, to say the least. And so even though as we pass the half-century mark and the event recedes into history, it's still important. I would say that it's still important because some of the forces in play 51 years ago are still very much in play. Many of the people attending this event have been guests on this radio program, I'm, I'm pleased to be able to say. Included among them Dr. Gary Aguilar, Dr. Josiah Thompson, Salon.com founder David Talbot, investigator Lisa Pease, deep politics legend Peter Dale Scott, and some folks we intend to bring on the program in the future, among them uh, activist attorney Danny Sheehan, former military intelligence analyst John Newman, and Dr. David Mantic. We're going to excerpt now uh, a talk given by San Francisco attorney Bill Simpich, looking back at the events of that fateful day. Mr. Simpich addressed some of the issues of evidence and how weak it was and how strange it was in many aspects of the case. He started out by talking here about the purported murder weapon. The person he mentions named Frazier was the FBI's ballistics expert. And the other voice you will hear in this narrative comes from Dr. Gary Aguilar. There's some strong evidence that the rifle, of course, was never fired that day. And it was never given a metal fouling test, which is standard. Now, that could have either exculpated him or inculpated him. Frazier's testimony shows that the barrel was rusted due to lack of recent firing. He doesn't quite come out and say it because he's very artful, but the word rust is in there. And hence, there was no need for a swab test. What a swab test would have shown, if you put it through and it's clean, it would prove the rifle had not been fired. But a dirty swab showing gunpowder and residue, well, that would show that it had. Now, Frazier didn't go that far because he took one look at it and saw rust, said, I'm not going to do anything, because he didn't want to know, he didn't want to create a record, so just bury it. Then this got buried, and there was no cross-examination. This is questioning by McCloy and Frazier. Had Frazier originally examined the barrel and found no rust, it would have been standard procedure to do the next swab test to determine there was no rust because the barrel was clean and because the bullet had passed through it. The swab test would have detected any metal shavings from the bullet jacket and gunpowder residue. Following a clean swab from the barrel with no rust would have proven the rifle had not been fired, while a swab with residue would have proven that it had been. And there's one interesting comment Frazier puts up there. He says, uh, McCloy says, how many rounds do you think were fired since it left the factory? And then Frazier is like scrambling here. And he goes, if a barrel is allowed to rust, one round will remove that rust. And what he's saying is, I don't want to have that conversation. There's a lot of controversy over that Manlicker Carcano rifle, which supposedly was used by Lee Harvey Oswald to shoot the president, but some of that was new to me. In the next clip, Bill Simpich talks about a couple of remarkable figures on the Dallas police force, in particular a Sergeant Jerry Hill, but also a Captain Pinky Westerbrook who was with the Internal Affairs Department. Now this is radio, we don't have the advantage of the, the picture that Bill showed at this conference, but... He's describing this police sergeant with his head out the window of the sniper's nest, waving below at 12.55, before they have found the rifle. 
and even before they report finding the shells right in the vicinity of that window. Now, if you think it's odd and perhaps a bit suspicious that a police officer could show up at the scene of the murder, run into a building, and up six floors to go to the exact window where the supposed assassin was before they even find the bullet casings, well, you wouldn't be alone. This is Jerry Hill, okay? Now, this is him at the sixth floor window, okay? <laughs> Saying hi to his fans. Now, the problem with one of this is this is supposed to be taken at 1255. Now, Luke Mooney, the guy who actually found the shells, uh, said uh, it was, I did this sometime around 110 after I found the shells, at, you know, a little after 1. So there's, there's something going on here. But the biggest thing that's going on for me is that there's a very fascinating sequence if you follow Jerry Hill's movements for the next hour. And you don't have to buy everything I'm going to say here because I'm not sure I do, but it's fascinating. Here's Jerry Hill at 1255. He's like the internal affairs guy. He's got no more business being there than I do. You know, and Westbrook shows up in plain clothes, and he's running the show. But that's another story. Jerry Hill is not supposed to be here. He jumps into another cop's car. They come charging down. You can see it. Uh, somebody's got it on YouTube. At 12.51, they pull into uh, the sixth-floor uh, parking lot. Uh, and within four minutes, he's up there, and he's waving at 12.55, saying, I found it. And he's ahead of everybody else. He's ahead of everybody else. Now, the reason why is because I think he knew they were going to be there. Okay, but this is interesting. And from here, Jerry Hill's story gets even more remarkable. This young guy, uh, Hassan Yassaf, out in Australia, has uh, done this little sequence with Hill, which is really quite smart. He says, you know, if he took the elevator down, or if he ran down the stairs, he could get in the car at 1258, and he goes code three, blows through all the lights. He's at Oswald's house in three minutes at 101. And, and the car he's in, the car he arrived in is car number 207, driven by Jim Valentine. And 207 is the very number that the landlady said. And so the 207 call goes to, winds up in Curry's desk. He turns to Westbrook and says, Westbrook, tell me, the, I want you to research who were the cops who came to Oswald's house that day. And he comes back at him a few days later. He goes, it never happened. Jim Valentine wasn't there. I talked to him at length, blah, blah, blah. He never mentions to the chief that Jerry Hill, his immediate subordinate, was in the car with Valentine that day. Now, you may need a little bit of background on this, dear listener. But after Lee Harvey Oswald left his place of employment, he went back to his boarding house. He was only in there a few minutes and was observed by his landlady. The landlady told a remarkable story to the Warren Commission that while he was in there, apparently a police car pulled up and hit the horn twice. Tit tit. The police car then drove off, presumably without Oswald inside. Now, until I heard this talk, I was unaware of the fact that Dallas police chief had inquired among his staff who it was that had gone over to Oswald's house because they knew by that afternoon that that had happened. Now, in the official narrative, Lee Harvey Oswald walks about a mile from his boarding house and is confronted by police officer J.D. Tippett, whom he shoots to death. That's the official story. He supposedly leaves the scene of the crime, walks further, and enters a theater in Texas where he was subsequently apprehended. It's not even inconceivable that Hill was the guy who got Oswald to the theater, because I don't think Oswald ever made it to Tippett's neck of the woods. But that's just a thought, nothing more. Where's Jerry Hill next? The findings of the Hulls are right about this time between 1 and 1.15, a good five minutes after you see Jerry waving, and that is timed by the Dallas press. 
120 hills at the Tippett crime scene. And, and, you know, within moments, he's, you know, coming up with the wrong shells. And he does this in 20 minutes before the call comes into the Texas theater. And then, boom, he's at the Texas theater. And, and uh, what's weird about the Texas theater is he's up in the balcony. Because the story was Oswald was up in the balcony. Yeah. And he's up there with some people that are interesting. He's up there with Bentley, the polygraph guy. And he's up there with another cop named Lyons. And he's up there with another cop named Carroll, Bob Carroll. By the time it's over, Bob Carroll has punched Oswald. He's the one who's given him the, the black eye and the, the bruises and the rest. But by his own admission, Hill's got the revolver, which Carroll seized from him and handed to Hill. And the other two guys both have sprained legs, sprained ankles. And and the, I think the reason why is because they sprinted down from the balcony. And the reason they sprinted down from the balcony is because they'd lost their man. They were, those four mugs, if you will, were the ones who, who I think were supposed to find Oswald and do something with Oswald, make the pinch in the balcony. I think Oswald was very lucky to get out of there alive. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why Oswald pulled out his revolver, was to create a scene because he wanted to live. I, I thought for a long time that Oswald was, had just lost his and was ready to you know, kill or do whatever he had to do. I think he was trying to be, I think he did whatever he thought he could do to stay alive. Create a scene, get a lot of cops around him so they couldn't shoot him. Anyway, just a thought, but the timing with Hill is quite remarkable, especially because by five o'clock, he's the first televised source, not just in Texas, not just the United States, but the entire world about the story of Oswald's defection to the Soviet Union and Oswald's role with the Fair Play for Cuba Committee mm -hmm. in great detail. And they asked him, where'd you get it? He goes, oh, I got off my friend Pinky Westbrook. He's the one who briefed me on that at 3 o'clock this afternoon. And then he felt confident enough, because he was a TV reporter in his spare time. Hill was. Yeah, he went directly from the TV business to the cop business. He was in plain clothes like Westbrook, but he was definitely speaking for the force. He felt totally at ease, making these comments to the world. Nobody ever disciplined him for it. Now, to fill in a couple gaps that were not in that particular narrative, this police sergeant, Jerry Hill, is observed waving down from the sniper's nest window 25 minutes after the assassination and before the shell casings are found. He then apparently leaves the building from which the shots were fired and drives directly over to the purported assassin's house leaves there to go to the scene where the purported assassin allegedly kills a police officer, and while he's at the scene, picks up three shells, which he then identifies as being 38 automatic. Of course, there's a problem here. Oswald had a 38 special. The two types of ammo are incompatible. He then hurries over to the theater where Oswald's about to be arrested and takes part in the arrest, and then comes back with the alleged police officer's murder weapon. That wasn't enough. He then tells the world press all the details about Oswald's life. And uh, if you don't find that to be strange, I'd like to do some real estate deals with you. And in the final clip, Bill Simpich addresses the curious issue of Oswald's wallet. Maybe we should say wallets. On evidence tampering, here it is. This is Westbrook here to the right. This is the guy who had the Oak Cliffs uh, Owens to the left. This is a wallet being passed about five minutes before they got the call for Oswald. This is, uh, yeah, this is at the Tippett scene before Oswald's arrested, before they drive off to the theater. WFAA, this is a still from a four-minute clip. 
you get a rather long passage. It's all on YouTube if you want to look at it more closely. And people have gone crazy trying to say, is this the same wallet that Bentley supposedly found or not? What's so interesting is that they're certainly very similar, which to me spells operation. And something in this operation went wrong because the, the way the wallet get, got there in the first place is totally mysterious. The guy who gets it was another guy named Croy who was literally handed the wallet by an unknown man who then disappeared. Nobody ever saw the wallet on the ground at the Tippett crime scene. They went over and over that ground with him and nobody could find it. It had been claimed for years that when Oswald was arrested, they found in his wallet two identifications, one in his correct name, Lee Harvey Oswald, one with the name Alec Hedell, which turned out to be the name under which the pistol and rifle had been ordered via mail order. It made it pretty easy to connect these weapons to the guy they had in custody. Except we now know that there were apparently two such wallets with two sets of identifications in them. All right, I want to thank Bill Simpich and Dr. Gary Argelar for putting on that symposium. David Talbot has a book out on the subject. We expect to bring him back on the program to talk about it. And we expect to put together an Internet-only special edition of this program to include uh, more of this material. And by the way, another guy we need to bring back on this program apparently is Greg Pallast, who we've not spoken to in many years. Between now and next week's program, your homework, dear listeners, to check out Greg Pallett's new piece, The Secret Lists That Swiped the Senate. But doggone it, we're out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks again to Bill Simpich and Dr. Gary Aguilar. And we'll see you next week for our annual Thanksgiving show, which we will try and keep a little more light and fun. It is, after all, a holiday. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and we'll see you then.